0: Crazy Faith Talk.
1: I'm Sarah. I'm Erica. And I'm Steve.
0: So friends, we're in the midst of a series in which we are looking at saints and sinners from across denominations uh, that are not our own. So we're looking at folks that aren't Methodist, aren't Lutheran. So far we've looked at the Quaker Richard Foster. We've looked at the Greek Orthodox Saint Pathios of, Sarah help me out, Arimathea. Um,
2: uh, Mount, Mount Athos.
0: Mount Athos, that's it. Uh, so Steve, who are we checking out today?
1: Uh, well, today I wanted to go old school. And when I say old school, I mean fourth century um, <laughs> to a figure who like in a sense is outside of my tradition in that he lived 400 years, er, 400 years after Jesus, um, way, way, way far back before we started dividing ourselves into teams of Catholics and Protestants and Orthodox and what have you. And, um, and yet somebody who's, who's, in some way, whose voice influences almost every branch of Christianity today because he was an important voice uh, in what became called orthodoxy, like in like a, in a, in a non, not in a brand loyalty sense of like Greek Orthodox or Russian Orthodox, but like the, the broadly collected, broadly uh, universally accepted approach to Christianity that is included in like the Nicene and Constantinopolitan creed that are pretty foundational documents to most Christian traditions today, uh, in some form or another, whether they admit it or not. Um, He's an important voice behind that. So I wanted to talk about uh, a guy named St. Basil the Great. Um, And I guess a short bio introduction to him. Um, I I was first introduced to him uh, when I was in college taking church history and learning about him as one of the, he's sometimes called the great three Cappadocians. There were three uh, early church writers. And by early, I mean like late 300s, into the 400s AD. Um, they all lived in this region uh, called Cappadocia in, in modern-day Turkey. Um, two of them were related, uh, Basil and his brother Gregory of Nyssa, and there was a third one who was their friend, Gregory of Nazianzus, um, and each of them eventually became bishops and teachers in various communities in Cappadocia. Each of them is also remembered uh, in part for their their theological writing about the Trinity and about the nature of God as Trinity. But uh, what I've been drawn to, especially lately about Basil is uh, the way he integrated his faith uh, in his social teaching and in his action and the the practical pieces of what his ministry looked like. So my, my first introduction to, to Basil was like in a paragraph of a church history textbook that was sort of like, At some point, the church decided to talk about the Trinity and said the Holy Spirit was God, too. And important writers were Gregory of Nyssa and Gregory of Nazianzus and Basil the Great. And that was the end of that conversation. But more recently, I've been reintroduced by a a colleague and and friend former classmate from seminary of mine, uh, Grant uh, Grant Eckert, uh, who's been retracing the social teaching of uh, uh, Basil and has opened up to me something that I never had an introduction to earlier on, um, but I found really, really valuable um so I, I think i grew up or i i was introduced to a lot of theologians earlier in life with like the value of theologian is here is the important doctrine that they taught that now we have in a creed somewhere um and the, their their contributions to the church are basically what doctrinal position do we have because of john calvin or because of martin luther or because of you know pick somebody um but uh and while basil had plenty of interesting things to say about the Trinity. Um, what I also found really, really fascinating is that just as important to him was that the followers of Jesus use their wealth in a way that took care of one another and that he didn't see this as controversial at all, but as like essential to being a follower of Jesus. Um, and I, the, what, what strikes me, what, what's been so, I guess, interesting for me or engaging for me lately is you know, I, I, I've grown up in a tradition, uh, in, in the Lutheran tradition, where every week we recite a statement of creedal belief in God, facts about God. God made the universe and God came in Jesus and there's a the Holy Spirit too. Sometimes we get very, very elaborate about what the things we do and don't believe about this God. If we trot out the old Athanasian Creed like sometimes we do on uh, Holy Trinity Sunday, we get into this long paragraph about the father is God and the son is God and the spirit is God and yet they're not three gods but only one God and the father is not the son like there's these complicated diagrams about all this but very little is said officially about and by the way we are called to use whatever resources we have to take care of one another um and that we also live in a time it seems right now where how we use our wealth and our resources seems like the kind of thing we can have a debate about, like, no, you're supposed to be rich. I mean, like there, there seems to be an awful lot of, of uh, debate within Christianity about um, is, is personal wealth, something to be hoarded. If you don't have wealth it must be assigned, you're lazy or you're cursed by God, or you're not good enough. Like that's a live conversation, but in the early church, no, there was this sense of, if you have wealth, it is, it is your responsibility to care for others. Um And that if you are somebody with means, it's come to you from God and pretending it hasn't uh, is, is doing a disservice to God and hoarding things that are more than you can possibly use is a kind of theft against your neighbor. So like that, that tradition that Basil articulates other ancient theologians like uh, St. John Chrysostom and the other, the other Cappadocians, they all have this woven into their theology and for them, this was as non-controversial as the Trinity. And again, this isn't a time when the church is hammering out where actually the Trinity was the more controversial doctrine, where the church is still figuring out what did we mean about God being Trinity? But they were all convinced we were supposed to use our resources for the sake of others. And yes, my wealth belongs to somebody else. Um, and if I if I have, um, there's, there's, there's a, a, a sermon where he says something like, if I have just one loaf of bread and somebody comes to me, I don't get to say, well, what will I eat? You have to go fend for yourself. Basil says, give give to somebody else and then trust that God will take care of you like God takes care of the widow of Zarephath. Like his default assumption is we take care of others and trust that God will take care of you. Not if somebody else has need, they must be lazy or bad. Um, it's, it's, it's just a totally different perspective of how we use our wealth and and our responsibility toward one another uh, than often you hear in religious circles, especially in America these days. And what I found so, uh, I guess, refreshing and also shocking is to discover that the idea that we belong to each other and have to care for one another, isn't a new idea. And it is not like something that, you know, has only been around for the last couple of decades or something, but is thousands of years old and was mainstream christianity for a very very long time and at some point we've lost what an earlier generation held on to and took as true um but that uh, it's not the other way around. And so I guess that's, that's a, a thing I've been wrestling with, is that we live in a time where sometimes you'll hear people say, taking care of your neighbor, that's a bunch of nonsense that you know, recently has been recently invented by Christianity, uh, or by a certain branch of Christianity. No, no, like this is, this is what Christians taught and, and was considered the default assumption of our responsibility to our neighbor for a very, very, very long time. And we've lost something, not that we invented some deviation, I guess. There's my crash course introduction to basil
2: yeah I think uh, I think you're lifting up something that I've also been kind of wrestling with um, since joining becoming a minister, which is kind of like this this idea of a lot of modern people think that socialism, especially modern America thinks socialism is an inherently bad thing and yet, we call ourselves a Christian nation and yet so much of the new Testament and the early church actually kind of calls for socialism. It calls for that taking care of one another and making sure that no one goes hungry or cold or, um, you know, that we're all taken care of.
1: One of the things I found uh again challenging and inspiring about basil's life is that he wasn't just somebody who wrote stuff or preached a lot of sermons and said hey you all should take care of each other but the the to sketch out a little bit of his life um he had he was born in the year around 330 350 something like that uh so after the council of nicaea but that's all not quite soup yet i mean it's, it's still pretty early what what Trinitarian orthodoxy would be, um, and at one point was going to uh, be a teacher of rhetoric at a university. Has, uh, a, I guess, what what others might call a conversion experience, where he decides he really wants to take faith seriously, is baptized younger in life this was in a time when the the conventional wisdom for some was wait to get baptized until you're about to die so you don't accidentally commit more sins and then lose the power of baptism like that was a thing for a while so we got to own that there's a weirdness to that that uh christianity today doesn't have the issue with but he's baptized a young man um and is going to become uh an ascetic a monk um he had an older sister Macrina who uh, had already founded sort of a a monastic community on a piece of property that the family owned and did the monastic thing for a while, sort of lived away from the world for a while, practicing simplicity, practicing poverty. He renounced a lot of his family wealth, sold uh, a lot of that wealth uh, to give, I mean, because he was convinced as he came to faith like, I need to give some of my wealth away, a significant portion away to other people who are in need and, and did that. Uh, so in a lot of ways, echoes the stories of later people like Francis of Assisi and people like that. Um, and then did the, the monastic thing for a while and then uh, later has sort of a second turning point in his life where he realizes he can't be just retreating from the world forever and goes, leaves the monastic life, is ordained as a priest, and then is eventually elected to be the Bishop of Caesarea and ran a huge social program, including creating a, uh, what some have called a new city. He called it, they eventually got called the Basilead, uh, which was sort of like what you might call like, Uh, Food bank and hospital and homeless shelter all in one. And so he created this place where if you were hungry, you could come and have food, you could have housing and shelter, where people who had contagious diseases were given treatment, and this was all free, and it was all made possible by the donations of other wealthy people who help take care of the needs of their neighbors. Um, And I guess one of the things I find so valuable is that Basil didn't just say, hey, you other people should take care of the hypothetical poor, and that he doesn't see wealth as like inherently sinful so much as he sees greed and apathy as the sin. So it's not like I gotta get rid of my money because it's bad, but more like if my neighbor is going without good things and I have means and I'm not caring for them, the problem is, how, how am I allowed to be indifferent toward the need of my neighbor? So it's it, he avoids that sort of uh, having money is inherently bad and moves it through, no, money is fine, but if, if my neighbor has needs and I'm hoarding, that's not okay, and I'm not allowed to you know take myself off the hook because I don't want to take care of the needs of my neighbor. And then he did it. He actually came up with a program, how could we actually take care of our neighbors around us? Um, and it was all this sort of we're going to we're going to take care of each other so even his approach to monasticism when when he created this basilead this sort of new city there were there were priests and monks and other folks who lived in this community and they all also practiced trades and day jobs so that they can make a living that they could then take care of other people with so it, it it was it wasn't just like um We're all going to pray all day and never have time to actually feed people. It was we're going to work and we're going to pray and the money that we make from the work that we do will help finance this whole operation to feed other people and give them medicine and cures and things like that. It was it was actually a whole different way of running a community and at least a small sense an economy with the idea of we are called to love our neighbors and not just other christians i mean you might have imagined many of them were but he deliberately left the monastic world in order to be just with anybody and everybody in the world and that, that that strikes me as both radical like looking back at like compared to what christianity looks like in many in many of our circles today but also to say this was what what a very deeply orthodox christian assumed was the right way to live and to create a community 1500 years ago
2: What I think I'm fascinated by by the early church and its its hierarchy is that bishops like those higher up in the hierarchy weren't necessarily set apart and like disconnected then from the rest of the community, but rather that they were still really active in the community. And, um, you you know, we we get that with uh, Basil, knowing what the needs are that to be able to help those needs. Um, Similarly, you know, we hear stories of uh, St. Nicholas, who Santa Claus is modeled Mm -hmm. after, you know, the whole stocking myth thingy came came about because he left money for his neighbor's daughters to have a dowry so that they could get married um you know in the and you know legend has that he put that the dowry money in their stockings that they hung out to dry um who knows if that part is true but like he was aware to know that his neighbors that the dad just died didn't couldn't contribute to the family anymore the daughters were still unmarried they needed dowries and they no longer had a father figure so what does he do he gives them dowries um you know you don't know that if you are just up in the white ivory tower of academia, or, you know, just sitting aloft loft being the bishop, like, part of being a bishop, especially in the early church, was still being active in in the church community.
1: Yeah. And I I think one of the things that the stories like Basil's or Nicholas for that matter, or, or even earlier into the, the book of Acts is the sense that the, The church doesn't exist for the sake of the church, but for the sake of others. Uh, There's a line of Dietrich Bonhoeffer's, not to get all Lutheran, but there's a line of Dietrich Bonhoeffer's that the church is the one institution that exists for the sake of people who don't belong to it yet. Um, Like the idea is that our job is not to prop up ourselves and that therefore the, the goal of a leader in a church, whether a pastor in a congregation or a bishop in a larger area isn't just how do we help keep this institution called church going, but how do we embody the goodness of God for the people around us, whether they are a, a part of our, our community or not, whether they are Christians or not, but how do we, how do we seek good for the people who are around us, um, and that that's what the, the purpose of church has always been and if we've lost that. It's not that uh, it's it's not that the ancients got it wrong. It's that we've lost something that they knew that we maybe have forgotten. One of the other things I found really helpful as an idea of, of Basil's, that again, uh, maybe at first sounds like uh, it could come out of a modern social critique and not somebody who lived one thousand six hundred years ago, but he talks about the way um, we 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 can live in a culture that never, that never understands the idea of enoughness that like we keep shifting or expanding the base of what we need and, or we, we keep turning our wants into things that we need. Um, and that once you've expanded that baseline and say, okay, well, I need to have a bigger house and then, well, I need to have more money to pay for the cost of my bigger house. And now, well, now that I've got a bigger house. I've also got to renovate the bigger house. I've got to put a thing on like that. We keep expanding the, and, and calling the new, whatever the new thing is, that's a need rather than, that's not that's not actually a need, but once once you've accepted that you have to have the big house, yeah, now you got to spend additional money to keep it up, or now you got to spend more on utilities to heat and cool the bigger house rather than the smaller one. Um, and Basil's one who recognizes that there's a sort of trickery we do on ourselves when we keep expanding the the base of what we actually need um, versus what we what's a want versus what we actually need to live, and that also connects with the notion of sustainability in his writing and in his thinking, that there is not enough resource in the world for limitless expansion of everybody's wishes, but there is enough uh, abundance in creation for everybody to have what they need. Um, And in that sense, it's not a pipe dream to imagine a world without hunger or a community without hunger or a community where everybody has a place to live. Um, it, it's maybe fanciful to imagine everybody can have a McMansion and Alexis, but uh, that's beyond what maybe we all need. And that, that, that honesty I think is is a helpful piece. The other thing that I found really helpful in reading him is that when he talks about care for the poor, it's never just this abstract, faceless, the poor, in a way that I think later Christianity would sort of treat giving to the quote unquote the poor becomes this sort of faceless act of impersonal charity that I use to get myself heaven points. Later on, I think in Christianity the notion of charity can get abused into well, if you want to get in good with God, give some money away to some generic the poor, and then God will give you points. Um, when when Basil writes. There, there's a, a section one of his sermons written uh, in a time of drought. And he lived through a really bad time uh, when the food programs that he ran were essential because food was getting scarce in that region and he writes with this terrible description of what it was like to watch people die of hunger. And so like, clearly this is not somebody making it up. This is someone who knows what it's like to see other people starve. And he says, why would we let this happen? when we have the ability to stop this. Um, And so it's not like the the poor are some faceless people he's never met, but like he's picturing the stories of people coming through their food, food distribution centers. And he, he writes also about having seen parents who were at the point of poverty having to make the difficult choice of which of their children they would sell into slavery in order to escape poverty so they could feed the rest of them. Um, So he lived in a culture that was still wrestling with the, the, um, the, the practice in the empire of slavery. And part of his voice was, Please, let's not make other families have to choose this. Please, let's not make any parent have to decide, should I sell my oldest so that my youngest can live uh, and be free? Or should I sell my youngest so that my oldest can keep the inheritance? What if we made a world where nobody has to sell their children into slavery? Um, and again, like that assumption of other people's lives matter. If it didn't happen in your family, good, be relieved of that. But just because it hasn't happened to you doesn't mean it's not your concern. So you're like, here's a voice to me that recognizes that that old notion that that definition of privilege that you know like saying that just because it hasn't happened to you doesn't mean it's not your problem right that like that sometimes we fall into that well I'm glad I'm not dying of starvation good good thing I don't have to worry about that therefore it's not a problem that basil says if it's happening anywhere it's a problem and if anybody is not experiencing the fullness of human life how can we be a part of 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 creating the possibility for people to have their basic needs met that that that's both radical and to discover it from an ancient voice like his is helpful for me because it reminds me that our our older brothers and sisters in the faith got this and somehow along the way we stopped listening to them
0: as i hear what you're sharing steve i I hear a lot of my faith tradition in this Mm -hmm. not now but when wesley started you know Mm -hmm. with um his prison ministries with you know starting schools so the children could be educated um the classes and bands collecting um offerings to help truly the poor not just the poor over there yeah but people that live next door you know that that needed it and um like like you kind of said i i don't know where we lost this mm-hmm. in church history um but the more i read of wesley and what he's done or what he did, the more I'm like, okay, can we, can we get back to that? Can we get back to Basil? Can we get back to the church of Acts? Um, how does that work with the Lutheran tradition? Again, it's one, I, I know a lot about Luther because of you all and our friendship, but I don't know everything. Like how would Luther, do you think that he would respond to
1: this? If I were going to feel the guest to start, I, I, I think, I, Luther Luther sometimes brings a very clear assumption that we have an obligation to care for our neighbor. When I think about the things I'm most familiar with in his writings, like I think about the perspective he takes like in his catechisms where he's writing to individuals and households and a, at a much more individual level of you're supposed to take care of the needs of your neighbor and he isn't creating a project of social engineering and of um, like political or civil power like and 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 luther you know had he had he had um some some political uh influence with certain princes who uh liked his ideas and there are others who wanted to kill him which made it hard to work with him um but honestly i think like in in his lifetime there was like look i just want to survive and I, i i think he was also so antsy so nervous about any any talk of you have to do these things to make god happy Uh, so much of luther's Mm -hmm. reaction to the the church of his day that was like you have to do good deeds or else you don't go to heaven um and luther you know so much of his theology is you're beloved as you are part for what you've done but the second half of that is And you're freed for the sake of your neighbor. But so much of that is written on an individual basis. It's, you know, when you're, you know, the head of the household teaching your children how to live, care for your neighbor. So like Luther will say in the catechism, things like the commandment against murdering doesn't just mean stop, you know, from stabbing your neighbor to death, but actively you're supposed to help protect your neighbor's life in all circumstances and feed them and take care of them. But there's a lot more of that as an individual thing rather than like, here's my social program to make it happen. Although you could probably make a case that he and Katie in the Wartburg Castle, you know, did a certain amount of, you know, taking care of the needs of their immediate community, but it wasn't handed on, I don't think, in as nearly as clear a way in like the, the Wesleyan tradition that they're, they're, it's, 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 it's a little bit different feel how you get to Lutheran mm-hmm. social ethics um, and maybe, maybe to be fair too. I think Lutheranism, for better or for worse, has defined itself for a lot of its history as a theological tradition. Like what it means to be Lutheran is we believe these certain things about God or here's how we do things in our worship life. Um, and that has meant sometimes we could be really, really um, silent about how are we supposed to practice it and live it for fear that we accidentally sound like we're preaching works righteousness. Um, I guess, I guess that, that that's my initial thought. What do you think, Sarah?
2: I think Luther had this really interesting love-hate relationship with intentional community. <laughs> and you know, I think that's because he he was a monk. Katie was a oh, nun. Yeah. They were they lived in intentional community who had a very clear agenda. And along the way, those agendas kind of got warped and twisted and unhealthy. And so they left those intentional communities and then they kind of accidentally created (laughs) an intentional community with, uh, you know, the black cloister and all of the people in and out of their home. And, you know, they, they, but I don't think that they ever really wanted to create an intentional community because there, I think that there, there was always kind of that underlining fear of it being warped and becoming unhealthy, like the Roman Catholic Church. Um, and this is just my own own read on the situation of looking back at history and um, psychoanalysis of uh, Luther and <laughs> Katie. But um, yeah, I think that they. They wanted people to do good in their community and in the world and to help their neighbors, but they never wanted to create like their own religion, their own, uh, their own monastery life Mm -hmm. to do it. They just wanted everybody to go ahead and do it. And that, that's how they kind of wanted the world to work.
0: Whereas I, Methodist started as the Holy Club at Oxford. Exactly. Very intentionally, very yeah. much, we are going to gather together. We're going to ask each other these questions. We're going to, you know, a, and Wesley is known for his, there's no holiness except for social holiness. Um, yeah. yeah Luther exactly, didn't want to be a club. He's not known for his theology because there's not really a set, we don't have a Wesleyan catechism right. um, like you all do. Um, you know, we we have his sermons and his notes on the New Testament, but that's that's the closest we get to a theology from John.
1: I, I had a, a mentor once who kind of off the cuff once said to me, um, and, and I, I think it, it takes shots at both Lutherans and Methodists, he said, um, Lutherans can be a theology without a church and Methodists can be a church without a theology. <laughs> um, and it was sort of like this yeah, like if if you've got all the right answers, but you're not living it out in community, that's you've turned you've turned uh, Christianity into a bunch of facts about God to be memorized, and if all you've got is. Uh, a group of people, uh, but there's not this sort of common good news that binds us. Yeah, that 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 can be problematic in different ways. So mm-hmm. it's it's a it's a it's a rather broad brushstroke. But I, that that observation has stayed with me. I guess the other thing that comes to mind in my mind is a, a, a generation after Luther. I think about what um, John Calvin's Geneva, Switzerland looked like, and Calvin's tradition did have much more of a. Um, we're going to make a Christian community based on, and a civil society and a civil city based on our approach to being Christian. Um, and there were ways in which that was fine. And there were also ways that I I think looking back, uh, it was terrible. It meant that like you could be, you know, burned at the stake for, for, uh, criminal charges of having bad theology that, you know, like in, in, and, and there were people who were executed under, under Calvin say, so, um, that i th- I think later Christianity has come to regret maybe we shouldn't have been wielding that kind of civil power um and I to me, it feels like that's an important piece that that i I don't want to make the the mistake in uplifting Basil's story about the community he created in the Basilead, and I don't think he named it. I don't think he named it after himself um but um it it wasn't wielding civil power and punishment. So like Basil never said I'm going to make myself king and we're going to have the power of the sword to kill people who are lawbreakers. It was entirely this social help power of we're not going to pretend that we're the army. We're not going to pretend that we're the police. We will help feed people, house people, care for people and try and create a kind of community where everybody's needs can be met. Knowing that we lit, we exist as an organ within a larger society, not trying to dominate the whole society. And t- to me, it feels like that's an important piece that Christianity often goes awry when we try to dominate the whole society and be like, we've got the answers, you must do what we say. And if you don't, on pain of death, we will punish you um there's lots of ways that's gone wrong that went terribly wrong shortly at you know in, in the lifetime of basil when the empire quickly adopted christianity and made it this is the official religion of the empire you will do what we say and we will conquer in the sign of the cross um and for a lot of the next thousand years after that um from like constantine and theodosius on for about a thousand years um the assumption was christianity should exert that kind of military and imperial power in in my reading a lot of that has been disastrous um and it meant that later on we started colonizing places and and telling people that we could conquer them because they were pagans and they didn't matter as much. And we could take their wealth um and that it was okay for us to enslave them because uh they weren't Christian and they didn't count or because we were gonna bring them the gospel while we pillaged them. And like a lot of terrible things happen when Christianity decides it's so smart and right that it should have all the power. And what I, what I find so compelling about Basil's story is that it's not one that ends in the tragedy of making himself king, but of, t- to me, like, it's a positive picture of servant leadership. Of how can we create a community positive that people can buy into and want to be a part of that isn't about exercising power to dominate, but simply to serve. And so th- that that gives me a hope I have not had about the institutional church in a long time.
0: Well, I, I find it fascinating when we look back at like a Basil, when we look at Luther, when we look at Wesley, when we look at the the church today and how things like this what we might consider today to be social justice issues yeah you know feeding the poor clothing the naked all the matthew 25 kind of things how they change and how they look different in different times in history based off of what's going on around um the people that are kind of guiding this Mm -hmm. and i i find that fascinating i find that very interesting um you know, there's such a difference between how Luther, Luther kind of did on a more individual basis, Wesley did it more in groups and societies, but there was almost 200 years between the two of them. So like, how much has changed, and you know, one's in Germany, one's in England. Um, You know, and now, a couple hundred years after that, like, how we are trying to put forth some of these ideas from the apostles, from Basil, from Luther, from Wesley, into the church today to try to make ourselves better.
1: Um. One other thing that I find really, really powerful and insightful from Basil that I think ripples off of that notion that, again, feels like this is a a word that I've heard spoken uh, a lot in contemporary life. And sometimes people go, this is just a new idea, but no, Basil was saying it 1600 years ago, that it's dangerous to conflate charity and justice. Mm -hmm. Um, And sometimes the church says, let's feed hungry people, but never get around to asking, why is it there are hungry people in the first place? Um, and there's, a, there's a, a sermon that's either Basil or one of his disciples. It's, again, a little bit muddy for sure. Um, but he talks about that you can't do works of mercy unless you first seek to reestablish equity. And he borrows the story of Zacchaeus uh, at the end of the story and talks about how Zacchaeus first says he's going to pay back anybody he's defrauded, and then on top of that, give you know, half his money away to the, the poor. Um and that there is this notion for folks like Basil that um, where my actions have defrauded or taken advantage of somebody else, or where my way of life has deprived somebody else of what, what they should be able to have for themselves, um, that's a matter of justice. Um, and then beyond that, yeah, we could talk about charity as well. And in, in, there's going to be some beautiful moments where justice and mercy bleed into one another. And you can't really draw a line between where one starts and one ends, but that... Um, Basil is is comfortable talking about those who have means giving to those who don't have means and his is the Greek technical word he uses for it is the word for rebalancing a scale like it's a matter of fairness that if I have more than I can use I have to give it to somebody else because God can't possibly have intended for me to have more and somebody else to go without that's not just and that Basil sees that as a matter of justice not charity and I think sometimes the conversation in contemporary Christianity, is like, well, if you feel moved to give to somebody else, that's fine, but that's charity and nobody can make you because you can't force charity. So if I feel like being generous, I can, but then I get to pat myself on the back as aren't I being a good little boy and being so and that we end up patronizing people like, oh, you poor slob, I'm here to help fix you and save you, whatever. When Basil and, and the other you know folks who wrote around his time, that 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 generation of that voice said like no god has if you've got more god's entrusted it to you to distribute it to people around you so that everybody has enough that's not optional that's god's calling on your life so it's like there is the responsibility if you have abundance to share with people around you and that's not just reserved for the super duper saints or the people who are aspiring to special spots in heaven that's universally what christians if you're following jesus are called to do and to me that distinction of like that notion of that's a part of what justice looks like, not it's extra credit charity, that seems like an important idea again I I didn't grow up with in 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 Lutheran circles hearing the catechism taught, um, and in American Christianity either. Well, I appreciate both of you being willing to listen to me talk about a guy who's been dead for a very, very long time um, and the way he's continuing to poke my conscience. But thanks to both of you for the the conversation. Um, If you've been enjoying these conversations uh, or would be interested in hearing about other figures uh, who have been important for our faith but outside of our traditions, good news, we're going to have another round. So join us uh, in future episodes as we talk about additional figures who've been helpful beyond our individual traditions here on Crazy Faith Talk.
0: Yeah bye